126. And uh, tonight we're going to look at the tie that binds. And what is that tie that binds in marriage? Uh, we, we started to scratch the surface last week. That tie that binds is God's glory. And we're going to look at how man and woman being created in the image of God b- brings great glory to the Lord and is an instrument to bring great glory to the Lord. And I'm very sorry that I didn't have anything witty to start with tonight. I tried to look up jokes on man being made in the image of God and go figure, there's just not a lot of material out there. So I have a new mission in life though, to make some witty comments about creation. Oh, I don't know. But um, I want you guys to think of uh, this question Uh, and try to answer it, maybe think about it throughout uh, the Bible study tonight. The question is, how is the image of God important or relevant to marriage? How is man being created in the image of God important or relevant to marriage? And I just want you to, I'm not going to give you all the answers. I'm just going to kind of preach and teach. And I want you to kind of like, oh, 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 okay. Something like that. Don't make that noise, though. It'd get kind of distracting. But I want you to think. Just think and ask the Holy Spirit to just, you know, get your juices flowing tonight and, you know, help you to think and, and process these things. Let's look at Genesis one twenty six and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, As we look at the image of God, we dive into what theologians call the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, or man being created in the image of God. As we looked at creation last week, all the different creatures being created, all the different plants and herbs and trees that yield fruit, all the planets and all of the, uh, you know, the uh, star that ruled during the day and the star that ruled during the night, we see that man was the only creature that was made in the image of God. Now, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. And so the meaning of Genesis 1.26 is that God planned to make a creature similar to himself. And the moment he said this, and you kind of, you can see the Trinity in this statement, the plural form of let us make God in our image. You see the Father speaking, you see the Son speaking, as Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus created everything. And you see the Holy Spirit speaking. You see God really putting into jeopardy his glory. I mean, he's doing something big and marvelous here. We're, we created all these things, and, and we looked at the poetry last week of how he created this, and it was good, and he created that, and it was good, and he created this, and it was good, and he created that, and it was good. And then he finally created man, and he said it's very good, but he almost put his glory at stake when he created something like him. Because what if man messes up? What if man sins? What does that mean about 
the image of God. Now, image, uh, the Hebrew word tselem, T-S-E-L-E-M, and the word likeness, demut, in the Hebrew, refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing that it was made in the image of. The word image can also be used of something that represents something else. Uh, A good way to think of image is like a mirror or a reflection. Uh, In a sense, we are like mirrors created to reflect the glory and the beauty of God. When we fell in the Garden of Eden, then every time we've sinned since, we shattered that mirror and we've broken it into a million pieces. But the good news of the gospel is that of redemption and how Jesus comes through and by his obedience and by his perfection, he starts picking those shattered pieces up and gluing them back together and melding them back together so that once again, we can reflect the glory of God. We we can reflect the one who we were originally created uh, to be like. And so the question, again, maybe a little more specific is, how is marriage a reflection of God. How is marriage a reflection of God? And to make it a little more personal, how is your marriage a reflection of God? I want you to really think about that. I want you to write things down. I want you to, uh, you know, if you don't have a pen, or you know, just try your best to, to think and consider that question. Theologians have thought image to mean man's intellectual ability, just as God had an intellectual ability, or God's power to make moral decisions or willing choices. Uh, Man's creation as male and female, does that have something to do with the image of God? Man's dominion over the earth. And when we realize that man is like God and represents God, these four definitions are way too narrow Uh, to really grasp what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, As we look at Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, this is after the fall and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness. Uh, That word likeness is demut, but it could also be translated in his own image. So Adam creates this son or has this son, begets a son, in his own likeness and after his image, and he named him Seth. Now, we don't get a lot of what Seth was like, uh, you know, every way that he was like his dad, Adam, whether it was, uh, you know, an olive skin complexion or if he had Adam's temperament, if he was athletic or if he had baby blue eyes or a great sense of humor. We don't know that about Seth, but that list would really be too restrictive. Really, the best way to say that Seth was like Adam was to just say all of the ways Seth was like Adam throughout his whole life that you could say, he's like his dad, he's like his dad, he's like his dad, he's like his dad, he's like his dad. You could say, he's made in the image of his dad. There are so many ways that Seth was like Adam. We want to look real quick at the attributes of God, the character and the qualities that that God is in his essence. As we have a great understanding of the attributes of God, we have a big picture of who our God is. Now, some of these attributes are not shared with man, even though man was made in God's image. Some of these attributes, like how God is eternal, 
Uh, we are not eternal beings. Though we will live forever, forever, some in heaven, in paradise with God, others in the lake of fire to be tormented forever, we haven't existed forever from before the foundations of the world. God is also infinite. He has no bounds or limits, the scriptures tell us. He's measureless, but we are measured. God is independent of his creatures and of creation. We are not independent. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We are not. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere, everywhere present. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We are not. We like to think we are sometimes. He's immutable, which means that he never changes. That doesn't mean that God doesn't respond to different situations, uh, but it means that he doesn't grow or develop or learn new things. God is sovereign and we are not sovereign. Now, there are other attributes of God that we do reflect him in. God is spiritual and we are spiritual as well. We have a spirit as well as a body. We are or excuse me, he is holy. And by his grace, he imparts his holiness to us. He sets us apart from the world and makes us holy day by day by his grace. And every day we become more like him, made more into his image. He is righteous and just in all of his ways. And he puts that into us as Christians. God is love. He makes us men and women of love, to love people and to love God. God is good. And in Galatians chapter 5, we read that goodness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the Christian. God is truth. And he can make us trustworthy and faithful as well. He is merciful. And the more we understand the gospel and that we have been forgiven much, then we in turn forgive much and are merciful as well. God is long-suffering, he's patient, he's beautiful, he's gracious, he's jealous. And we too can be those things. Specifically as husbands and wives, the legitimacy of your love and care for your spouse would be called into question if you didn't feel jealousy when another man or woman was competing for the devotion and affection of your spouse. God is jealous for any person, place, or thing that competes for the affection of his bride, the church. He's desirable. He's sacrificial. Some of these attributes are uh, qualities that are given by his spirit dwelling within us and, and being made in his image. There's other specific aspects of our likeness to God, such as moral traits and spiritual traits and mental traits. We have the ability to learn and to reason. We can understand abstract, complex languages. We can accomplish and enjoy music and art and decorating and gardening and cooking and inventing. And just as God worked and created and designed here we are, his children, his creation, made in his image, and we love to do those things as well. We have the complexity of emotional feelings because we've been made in his image. We have relational traits 
Because we've been made in the image of God, we have the depth of interpersonal relationships. We see this within marriage and family. We're greater than the angels, even the angels that were created, in that they are never married and they never have children or live in the company of the saints. In marriage, we reflect the Trinity as the Trinity has community. Three in one, not needing anybody else, but having perfect fellowship and communion within the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We too have that innate, you know, built within us desire to be part of community, to share everything that we do on Facebook and get the likes and get the responses and get the tweets and the retweets and, you know, to share a YouTube video, a funny video or something like that. We want to, you know, we live in community. We want to share things. You know, we need encouragement. We need, uh, you know, we need each other, brothers and sisters. We need exhortation. We reflect the Trinity as we have the same importance, but difference in roles. We have physical aspects similar to God. Now, John 4 tells us that God is spirit. You know, we're told in Exodus 20 that we're not to make an image of God or to think or portray God as anything material or physical. But we do have similar things that God has, such as senses. We know in the scriptures that God sees and hears and, and uh, enjoys things. He moves. He created children, if you will. Childbearing, giving birth, and raising Children, it's a reflection of God's ability to create human beings that are like himself. We see that not only were we created in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It talks about these people whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who don't believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, we've been created in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. As Colossians 1.16 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so we have in Ephesians chapter 5, this classic passage on marriage and the responsibilities of wives and the responsibilities of husbands. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we read that wives are to submit to their own husbands. In a couple weeks, we're going to get into to just looking at the blessings and the privileges and the responsibilities within being a wife. Uh, and, and we'll also get into in weeks that of the husband. And we're not going to super dive into that now. But we just want to read. And I want you to think about uh, how marriage is uh, a reflection of God. Okay, And we see it a lot here in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. You guys remember, isn't it like a synonym is, is um, 
something that uses like or as or something I'm trying to remember from back in, you know, English class. So when you're seeing these likes and ases, you know, you can be like, oh, this, this is how this is a picture of, of um, marriage, or this is how this is a picture of our relationship with God, or this is how this is a, a reflection of the glory of God. The husband's the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as, don't want to give it away, but just as, the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I've been mulling over and meditating on um, this quote out of a book called No Ordinary Marriage. And um, I, it's, like, it's like, I don't want to give it away yet. I want to wait till the, the week on wives. But I just have to share a tidbit of it. That as we look at, on submission and how it's a reflection of the glory of God, it's a reflection of the relationship we have with Christ. It says here, uh, submission represents a call to wives to give their husbands what belongs to the wife by right. Fully equal to their husbands, godly wives choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They are not subordinate, but with God's help, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It is also what makes it so exalting. It was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would otherwise have been an unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. The humility of Jesus unto death precipitated an outpouring of blessing that continues to this day. You guys remember when Jesus was in the garden and he deferred to the Father? You remember when he prayed, Lord, if at all possible, here, I'm throwing my petition out there. If at all possible, let this cup pass. Here's my vote. <laughs> my vote is no crucifixion, okay? If there's any other way, but then what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God the Father is not worth more than God the Son. God the Son not worth more than the Holy Spirit, but there is role and there is order within the Trinity. There is different, deferring to one another within the Trinity as the Son says, not my will, but yours be done. And so how? Does a wife submitting to her husband reflect the nature, the attributes of our God? Husbands, verse 25 of Ephesians says, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now listen to this. This is a great mystery, verse 32 says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He's like, I'm not even really talking about marriage. <laughs> He's like, I'm talking about the true and better marriage. I'm talking about you guys 
Created in the image of God, male and female. Let us create man in our image. Male and female, we'll create them. And their union, it's going to be a mystery. It's going to be a picture. It's going to reflect our glory, our relationship, our attributes, our splendor. And it's going to get the world looking at us. This best creation that we made. That we saved the best for last. Everything else was good. When I created man, it was very good. And then I found that something was not good. That man should be alone. And so then I created woman from Adam's rib, once removed from the earth. Adam formed out of the dust. Eve formed out of a rib. Eve being doubly refined. This last and best creation of marriage and union it's going to be a full length mirror <laughs> a full length mirror to shine my glory and so if man was created in the image of god to be a reflection of that why exactly was man created in this image god did not need to create man yet he created us and the scriptures tell us it was for his glory Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I've made him. Or Ephesians 1, 11, In him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We as mirrors who are being healed and put back together to reflect without distortion anymore. It's all for his glory. It's all to the praise of his glory. As 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that as these mirrors, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whether you're married or single, whether you're dating or engaged, be those things to the glory of God. Dwell with your wife for the glory of God. Buy the big screen TV for the glory of God. Be a vegan for the glory of God. Eat a steak for the glory of God. Whatever you do, it's to be worship to the Lord. In your marriage, the trip to the Costco, is this going to glorify God? How are we glorifying God in the things that we buy? The vehicle purchase, you name it. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This fact that we were created to glorify God guarantees us that our lives are significant. If you're wondering at all, if, if your marriage is significant, if your life is significant, maybe you're depressed, maybe you're even having suicidal thoughts, just the fact that we were specially created to bring our God, our creator, glory, shows us that we are significant creatures. When we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we were very important to God 
himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance on earth in our lives. If we're truly important to God, Wayne Grudem says, if we're truly important to God for all eternity, then what measure of importance or significance could we want? Everything that we should want, which should be what he wants. I want what he wants. Grudem goes on to say, this understanding of the doctrine of the creation of man has very practical results. When we realize that God created us to glorify him, and when we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose, then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we've never before known. Is your marriage just in the pits right now? I mean, is, is it like all you can do to like not sleep in another bedroom at night or, you know, just not make a face when the dinner hits the table or, you know, walk through the garage and not just scream at your husband for having not cleaned it up yet, you know, whatever it may be. If there's, you know, just a down spell right now in your marriage, I encourage you to realize afresh tonight that God has created you and your wife or your husband. He's created your marriage to glorify him. And when you begin to act in that way and fulfill the purpose of glorifying God, there will be joy immeasurable within your relationship. When we add to that realization that God himself is rejoicing in our fellowship with him, our joy becomes inexpressible and filled with heavenly glory, as Peter tells us. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as image bearers of God, husband, image bearer, wife, image bearer, your union, image bearers, if we ever deny that unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, above the dolphins, above the penguins, above the wild stallions, if you ever deny that, you will begin to depreciate the value of human life. You'll depreciate the value of your spouse's life. They will become nothing to you. You will tend to see people as merely a higher form of an animal you'll begin to see your husband as an animal. He's just an animal. Heard it so many times. Robin. Or my wife, you know. She's such a fox. You know, that's usually what I hear. No, but when you, when you forget your role as creation, as glorifying God, as you forget that your husband and that your image bearers, you just think of each other as, you know, something maybe a step above that animal and you'll begin to treat other people like animals. You'll treat your husband and your wife just like an animal. We also will lose much of our sense of meaning in marriage. And so just a fresh at the beginning, you know, kind of the beginning still of this family gospel family series, gospel marriage series. That God would show us afresh what it means to be created in his image. And that your wife, as once removed from the earth, dust refined. You were created out of dust. Eve created dust refined. God created her as a special gift to you. 
that when you join with her, then there would be a fireworks explosion of worship and glory in the heavens. Come back to that. Let the Holy Spirit show you that once again. As John Piper says, that the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's God's doing. And the most ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's for God's glory. Okay, so last week we looked at the foundation of marriage and we kind of tied that in just now. And then it's God's sovereign design. And in him designing marriage, he gets to say who marries who. And he did it. A man marries a woman. He gets to say for how long that marriage lasts. He says for life in Genesis chapter 2, let not man separate. Jesus reaffirms that in Matthew chapter 19. He sets the standard and he gets to because he's the creator. If man created it, we could do whatever we wanted with it. Shape it and change it to fit our needs and our wants. God created it. God created it. He set the canon. He set the standard. Marriage ultimately exists for him. So the foundation designed by God. And then we're going to transition right now in looking that as it's designed by God, marriage designed by God, even created in the image of God, okay, it's ultimately for his glory. That's the tie that binds it all together. A healthy marriage will be a worshiping marriage. A healthy marriage will be a marriage that's all about the glory of God, that realizes it exists ultimately not for self, not for security, not for provision, not so I can stake my claim in this world and get my house with the picket fence, not for myself at all. My marriage exists for his glory. And until you understand that, your marriage, as I said last week, will walk with a limp. As Ted Savage says, marriage can be rewarding, but here's the crucial qualification. Such lofty ideals are by no means automatically realized. Husbands and wives must exercise vigilance. They must be committed to work for this prize. In particular, they must cling tenaciously to the one piece of equipment that guarantees a safe ascent to the marital summit. They must fasten themselves to the rope that binds them together as one. And what is that rope? It is the glory of God. When husbands and wives cling firmly to the lifeline of God's glory and do so with a resolve appropriate to the importance of their joint expedition, the unbridled optimism of the wedding will be confined confirmed a hundred times over by an upward ascent that surpasses even the loftiest expectations. Imagine your wedding day and all the hopes and dreams that you wanted that union, that consummation to bring about into this world. Without the glory of God as the center, it's nothing. It's chaff. It will perish and the end is death. But with glory as the rope that you cling to, you can multiply your greatest hope on your wedding day you know, by a thousand, and you'll find that that's going to be the case. That's how God works. That's how God has designed it. You see in Genesis 2, 21, when God did create uh, Eve for Adam, Genesis 2, 21, 
The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's been taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so here we have in verse 23, the first recorded words of a created being. The words of Adam, the day of his wedding, the day that the father walks the bride down the aisle and presents Eve to Adam. He kind of sings out this song. Most theologians see this as poetic. It's a poetic, it's like a song. And this was before the fall, when we began to worship the created things rather than the uh, creator. And so at this point, Adam, as he declares that this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this, this, she's got my rib for goodness sakes. This is the best creation ever. He's not worshiping the creation. Who's he worshiping? The creator. He's worshiping the God who presented his bride to him. He worships when he sees his wife bursting forth in poetic praise. And so once again, most foundationally, marriage is the design and the doing of God, but ultimately at its pinnacle, at its highest point, on your marriage's best day, marriage will be worship to God. This couple, Adam and Eve, were made in the image of God. They were reflecting God. They were displaying God. As one man said, the story of the first marriage never ceases to move us. Yet it's easy to miss its central point. The insight of these verses, an insight which ought to form the centerpiece of every marriage, is that there's more to matrimony than first meets the eye. In other words, more than what is there, more than mutual attraction, more than shared interests, more than reciprocal love, there is infinitely more. How many of us have ever thought of that? I'll be honest. I've fallen into that trap that thinking the most and the best of marriage is that there will be a mutual attraction. Love at first sight. She'll think I'm hot. I'll think she's hot. We'll have shared interests. We'll like to rappel together. We'll like to go mountain biking. We'll like video games. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Or at least on the best day, we'll have some reciprocal love here, right? I'll love her. She'll love me. We'll be a happy family. But there's infinitely more than that. There is the work of God within your marriage, a work that has woven more glory than all of the glory in any other work of creation. A glory that is brighter than anything physical of the world below or even of the heavens above. In the first marriage, in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam sees Eve and bursts out and prays, divine glory has reached its zenith. The capstone to creation has been seen when Eve is united to Adam. And that is the reason why there's so much glory in marriage. It's because there's so much God in marriage. There's so much glory in marriage because there is so much God in marriage. 
No other work of creation was reported in such detail. So what is the cause that a man shall leave his father and mother and be clinging to his wife, gripping hold of his wife? What's the cause? It's because of everything God has done to form this union. He put thought and effort into it. And if our God puts thought and effort into something, it is important. It's because of his involvement at every stage of this development. God creating the creatures, creating man, identifying a deficiency, proposing a solution. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Demonstrating a need. As man names all the creatures, he realizes, I've got a need now. God was the one that showed Adam he had a need. So then God executes a plan. He makes a woman, and finally he presents the woman. He presents his handiwork to Adam. What's the cause that would cause a man to cling to his wife? It's because of the heavy allotment of the glory of God invested in this partnership. Ted Savage says, we marry not primarily for our own benefit and pleasure, nor principally for the comfort of mutual affection, nor ultimately for the joy of bearing and raising children. We marry because in a world of unparalleled glory, the Lord built this union. We marry because of his glory. I just Googled today, what is marriage? That's a fun one to research from a worldly perspective. And most of the answers were marriage is just to provide, uh, you know, a way to make children and raise children in a supportive community. And that's pretty much it. That's the best that the world has to offer. You know what? That's what a lot of us would offer to the question, what is marriage for? Well, support, mutual encouragement, reciprocal love. And sadly, within the church, one of the last things that we have in mind is the glory of God. The first principle of matrimony is the glory of God. Glory is the tie that bind. The blessings of your union, when it's cemented by God's glory, are vast, are great. First of all, such a marriage will be invulnerable to the vacillating circumstances of life. For many couples, change threatens harmony within the home. Sometimes time steals away the youthful features of a bride and produces hormonal swings instead and uh, emotional you know, outbursts that you just weren't ready for. I've never gone through that before. Some of you have. Um, just kidding. Husbands, tempted because of that to look elsewhere for a more attractive or predictable spouse. When the stresses of work erode away a husband's self-respect and diminish his capacity for sensitivity, a wife is tempted to look further afield for her encouragement. And that would be the case. Some of us have experienced that very tragically. That would be the case, but only if partners focused on this changing, oscillating drama of feminine beauty and masculine strength. 
If that's what we were holding on to tie our marriages together, we would be in big trouble. But if we cling to the glory of God as the rope that secures our union, that ties us together, a knot that won't be undone, all the different circumstances of life, the highs and the lows and the weight gain and the weight loss and the emotional roller coasters and the husband that's just emotionally not there for the spouse, for the wife, all these twists and turns and man, there would be grace in those times. They wouldn't even destabilize a marriage, but rather there'd be a deeper bond created. As Savage said, this is all because the glory of God is stronger and its capacity to bind us together than circumstances are and their capacity to divide. When glory, the glory of God is at the center of our marriages, there's increased unity. We've got a common goal and we're able to just scale to the mountaintops within our marriage because we're both so focused on glorifying God in the way I treat my wife, in the way I love my wife, in the way I speak to her, in the way I communicate throughout the day, in the way that my wife, is, you know, she desires to respect and honor me and submit and to be a picture of Jesus and his submission. Man, the gospel being made in the image of God, it brings about so much grace throughout life's fluctuating circumstances. A marriage of love, Paul Tripp says, and unity and understanding is not rooted even in romance. It's rooted in worship. Why you struggle in your marriage and how those struggles will ever get solved. Worship is your first identity before it's ever your activity. You are a worshiper. So everything you think, desire, choose, do, or say is shaped by worship. Did you catch what Paul Tripp said there? Worship is first your identity before it is your activity. Why is it first our identity? Because we've been created in the image of God. Worship is first our identity. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, speaking about his crucifixion, he says, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. He's talking about the cross there and he calls his time there of hanging on the cross, his glory. The cross was Jesus' high point of his time here on earth. Some people have termed Jesus' uh, high point there, cruciform love. Cruciform love, his self-sacrificing. As Jesus even said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, and that would be his glorious moment, but rather to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his glorious moment. This is the monumental truth. The glory of God receives its fullest expression in the self-emptying love of the crucified Christ. Jesus on the cross 
is glory. Jesus serving, Jesus dying to self is his glory. And this is the calling to people who've been made in his image. A young schoolgirl was once asked why God created Eve. And she responded by saying, after making Adam, God felt that he could do better. That's why he created Eve. Heard that one before. Well, actually, biblically, the reason why this aloneness of man was not good was not because Adam would have been isolated or lonely or without human existence for the rest of eternity. Those are just sentimental readings of the scripture. The real reason is because he'd been endowed with the divine image of God and therefore with the capacity to empty himself sacrificially into another. We see that God is a sacrificial God. His glory was himself on the cross. So how was Adam ever supposed to sacrifice himself? There was nobody else there. He could never enjoy being made in the image of God unless there was at least one other person for there to be an exchange of this self-giving love. As a lone human, Adam couldn't fully be the image of God. And so the reason that Eve is called the helper, that's not a derogatory term, gals. In fact, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. After I ascend, I will send the helper to you and he will be with you and he will empower you. Man helps the woman as well. She bears the image of God and becomes all that God intends her only when she's pouring into another that she can give herself sacrificing love to, that she can submit and sacrifice. This brings a remarkable discovery. Paul Tripp says, Implicit in the narrative account of creation is a principle vital to the success of every marriage. Put succinctly, we marry for the good of our partner. This is a radical notion and quite different from the incentives normally governing marriage. Typically, we marry for what a person will give to us. Hence, what we will become by virtue of sharing life with that person. We often interpret the word helper in Genesis 2 as one who gives us assistance in any one of a number of different ways, from increasing our income to producing our progeny. But if we are right in our understanding of the word, help means actually the opposite. A helper, listen to this, is one who receives our assistance and so helps us reflect the image of God. And so what is the epitome? What is the high point? What is the extreme of marriage? It's worship. It's glorifying to God. When your husband wrongs you and your husband will wrong you and it will hurt, or when your wife sins against you, you have these defects within your marriage The first order of business is not to point out those defects and to point out those people's sin. Whenever we have those divisions erupt, first we ask ourselves, is there any sin in my life? Is there any selfishness in my own heart? 
And then we ask God to renew in us a heart that characterizes his image, a heart that is humble, a heart that is gracious, a heart that is merciful, a heart that is self-sacrificing. And when we pray those prayers, God won't leave them unanswered. As Piper said, the most ultimate thing that we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. That's it. It exists to display God. And now we see how. Marriage, we're just almost done. Literally like two paragraphs left. We see how marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship with the church. And therefore the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that is why you are married. If you are a wife, you are a wife so that you can put the covenantal bond of God and the church on display. And if you are a husband, you're a husband to put the covenant relationship of Christ and the church on full display. We're motivated by this. And we take seriously our vows till death do us part. Because we are displaying the image of God. Ruth Bell Graham was interviewed on Oprah one day. And Oprah asked her, have you ever considered divorce? And Ruth Bell Graham said, divorce? Never. Murder? Yes. Because we've been made in the image of God, we stay married. We keep the covenant because Jesus will never leave his bride. We're reflecting Jesus. Jesus will never leave his bride. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. Lord, this is just revolutionary to so many of us. Lord God, we pray for minds that could just really understand what we've just heard as we've looked at the scripture, as we've looked at the the really depths and meaning of even the first two chapters of the Bible. As we look at the first marriage, Lord. And Lord, we've come so far from that. Lord, either we just totally neglect our marriage and our families, our wives and our kids, our husbands, Or Lord, so often we go to the other extreme and we idolize them and our life revolves around them. And Lord, we just confess that the ultimate thing in our marriage and in our homes and in our parenting and in our, um, you know, having kids, being kids even, Lord, we confess that your glory has not been our aim. Lord, we've not been worshipers, but we've fallen away and we've worshiped the created thing. Lord, we we know we're never going to get what you intended by worshiping creation, by worshiping man, by worshiping kids, by worshiping stuff that moth and rust will destroy or thieves will break in and steal. And so, Lord, we just confess we've had a lack of care about your glory. We've had a lack of care that we were created in your image, that we share attributes with you. 
Lord, that we represent you to the world. That our marriage, God, is a picture, is a portrait of Jesus, the true and better groom, being a husband to the church, his bride. Lord, by your spirit, Lord, help us to understand. As 1 Corinthians says, just the the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They must be spiritually discerned. Lord God, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to discern these things. That Lord, the next time we get in a big fight or the next time we're tempted to act selfishly or pridefully, stubbornly, act out in a fit of rage, the next time we just don't want to be emotionally available for our spouse or converse with our spouse, that Lord, we'd remember your glories at stake. We want our neighbors to see you when they look at our home. We want our, our, our kids to see you when they look at our marriage, when they look at their moms and their dads. Lord, let that tie of your glory bind us together. There's so many marriages represented in this room and so many sinners, Lord. Sinners that have said, I do. Lord, put a hunger in our hearts for the rest of this series, Lord, that we would just hunger and thirst for rightness, Lord. That you would train us and equip us that we could go out and help our friends and our neighbors who are hurting in their marriages. And if you're here tonight, we just want to have a time of just responding. And if just the Holy Spirit has convicted you that your marriage has not been a reflection of God, has not been a reflection of his glory, of his patience, of his long suffering, if it hasn't been a picture of his beauty, if it hasn't been a picture of his goodness or his truth or his faithfulness, and just the Holy Spirit would gently just show you, look, you've been thinking your marriage is about you. It's not. That just tonight you would just repent and just respond to God. And maybe even just stand up where you're at. You don't have to stand up with your spouse. You can just stand up by yourself tonight. Just respond to God's word. Just where you're at, just stand and we'll pray for you. And you can just confess to the Lord. Man, you know what the the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right after David failed big time, he wrote, of God's forgiveness and that a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God's yet to deny. If you're here tonight and you just, you saw the word, you saw how you've fallen short of God's glory and reflecting it, just tonight, just say, Lord, I've fallen short. I've not been the wife that you would have me be. I've been selfish. I've been prideful. Husbands, stand up right now and just confess. I've not been the husband. I've been letting circumstances and fluctuations in our relationship gauge how much I'm going to love my wife, how much I'm going to show affection to her. How much sex I get equals how much I'm going to love her, how much she 
dresses up and puts makeup on and wears certain things, that's when I'm going to really show her love. Lord, we're not representing you rightly there. And we're not reflecting you rightly. And we want to repent. Any way that the Lord has shown you your failure, you just stand tonight and say, God, I come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we pray for these marriages. We pray for these women. We pray for these men who just acknowledge weakness, God. We pray that they would receive your forgiveness. They would receive your grace. And Lord, that they would go out and give grace and give forgiveness. Let our homes be worshipful to you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening and God bless.